Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, the first eight verses. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, hear the word of God. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God." And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving And the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thus far, the reading of God's solemn and holy word. Dear congregation, we cannot really separate Good Friday from Easter. There is an intimate connection. Martin Luther has rightly said that Good Friday and Easter are the two hinges upon which the door of salvation is thrown open. The dying lamb and the living conqueror, the cross and the crown are two pieces of one inseparable salvation. But just as there is an intimate connection between Good Friday and Easter, There is also an intimate connection between resurrection morning and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. The living conqueror, the resurrected Lord of glory, will bring in his ultimate fruit on that day when he will gather all men to himself, some unto everlasting well, some to everlasting woe. And God's people really need him in all three areas, don't they? We need him as the dying one to be our life. We need him as the living resurrected one so that we may die daily to ourselves and be formed for glory. And we need him as the coming one in the clouds in order to enter into glory forever. That's why when Reverend Kivenhoven finished his sermon this morning, That very last statement of his sermon was really a transition 
into this evening sermon, as one of the elders said to me, because you understand this, when he said, you think you are really living now, and you are really living if you're a believer, but it's but a shadow compared to what you will be. When the ultimate fruits of resurrection come in the glory of God, when your soul and body shall both be perfect without any encumbrance of this world's earthly infirmities, and you will serve God forever in glory, married to Christ, sin-free in soul and body to praise Him forever. Oh, what a future this resurrected Lord brings to his people. And this reminds me of the, the famous Chronicles of Narnia, the stories that uh, C.S. Lewis told to, to children. You know, the last chapter of the last book called The Last Battle is titled Farewell to Shadowland. And the final paragraph of the entire series of seven volumes reads this way. The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last... They were going to a land to begin chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Oh, that's an accurate summary, in a way, of the last two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Here, as we have followed through all the battles of all the seven cycles throughout the book of Revelation of the here and now, we have now finally come to a shadow-free land. We're moving out in these last two chapters, away from all the shadows. We're moving into the glorious victory, the eternal victory of the resurrected Lord. Satan and the beast and the false prophet, and all that bear his image, and all that have worshipped him and followed him, no longer have a place in these chapters. They're all left behind in the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20. For the seed of the woman, they are no more. It's the beginning of a new age, or as Lewis put it, it's the dawning of a new day. The dream has ended. This is the real, alive Morning, the morning of God's new age, which is going to go on forever and forever. This is what we call utopia, genuine utopia. In 1513, the word utopia was introduced into the English language by Sir Thomas More. He used the word to describe an imaginary island where everything is perfect, a perfect society. And ever since then, I suppose, well, throughout all ages, people have been picturing various utopias, a dream of a perfect society. It's been the, the age-old preoccupation of philosophers and theologians and politicians and dreamers all over the world. 
only just a little more than a century ago. In the early 20th century, many people were speaking about a new age of modern man where war would be no more, and then came two major world wars and the threat of a third. Yes, with man there is no utopia, but with God there is a true utopia. For God's people, it's not some idle dream. The message of the Bible is that the resurrected Lord of glory in the here and now who lives on the throne of God is coming again to finish the ultimate cause of his resurrection, to bring in utopia for the children of God. Those who have tasted the powers of the world to come here, foretaste of heaven here, shall enjoy the everlasting perfect glory hereafter. Here it is just foreshadowed. There it is eternal light. The new age, God's utopia, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells only righteousness, where all evil is walled out and all good is walled in. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord for the climax of his resurrection. That's the message of these last two chapters, and in particular, the first opening verses of Revelation 21 that we look at this evening, verses 1 through 8. And I'll read again now only verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So with God's help, we want to look at this theme, the ultimate fruit of Christ's resurrection, utopia in the age to come. We'll ask three questions. Whose utopia is it? Second, we'll spend most of our time here. What is going to happen? And third, who is going to be there? Utopia in the age to come, the ultimate fruit of Christ's resurrection. Whose utopia is it? What is going to happen? Who is going to be there? Well, the first truth we have to convey to you this evening is certainly this, that this utopia is not man-made, but God-made. In fact, it is God's utopia. Behold, I make all things new, says the resurrected Lord who sits upon the throne, John tells us. You see, only God can make a perfect society. Only God can make all things new. People vainly imagine that by better education, a better environment, a greener environment, better legislation, more equitable distribution of wealth, they're going to be able to bring in a new era, a golden age. And even the oceans will rise, as we've heard recently. But people have been saying this, thinking this, writing this for centuries. But God comes tonight to us in Revelation 21, and he says, let me tell you, I make all things new. Behold, only I can do it. You can't do it. You can't make anything of this world into a utopia. With all your institutions, with all the think tanks of the world, all the pressure groups, all the lobbying groups in Washington, all the international councils and conferences, all the resources at your disposal, religious or secular, you cannot make anything of this world, but behold, I make 
all things new. So tonight we're not speaking about anything man-made. We're speaking about God's utopia. Only God can restore and renew men and women and indeed the very universe in which we live. Now to be sure, the beginning of that utopia happens already here and now in principle in what God calls a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know the text well. Paul says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. In the the original Greek, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's what happens when a person's born again. Brought into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, wherever that happens, there is a new creation. Our canons of Dort say that that new creation is even superior to the creation of the first world. It's an amazing miracle. It's a resurrection from the dead. Behold, I make all things new. The things you hated before, dear child of God, you've now come to love. The things you loved before, you've now come to hate. God makes all things new. And when that happens... It's just overwhelming, isn't it? You get a new heart. You get a new transformation. You come to find your life in the new covenant. You have new desires. You have a new relationship with God. You love him now. You have a new relationship with sin. You hate it now. You have a new life. You put on the new man. You do works of righteousness by the grace of the Holy Spirit. You have a new passion for holiness. You have a new commission to go out and make disciples. You now see people in a new way. You see every unsaved soul as a mission field. Behold, I make all things new. This is what the world needs today. If the world's going to begin to approach any kind of genuine utopia... It needs thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people born again, made new creations. The solution for modern man is not from the top down. It's from the grassroots level up. It's true conversions alone that can change America, that can change our world. You know, even secular historians have acknowledged at times when they've done history throughout the last 2,000 years that at the times of great revival and reformation, that society itself was transformed when masses of people were saved. Uh, Alcoholism went down. uh, Sensual licentiousness uh, uh, was dissipated. There was a, a, a transformation of society and there was godliness and there was love that prevailed. And the power of God came down upon the people. That's what happened in the Great Awakening in this land, for example. There was such a change, such a change in the Reformation that it impacted all of society. That's what we need today. That's what we need with the greatest moral issue of our day, the the dreadful sin of baby killing that we call politely abortion. 
A systematic killing of millions of babies in this land. It's not going to be resolved by the overturning of Roe versus Wade or by any human legislation. It will only be resolved when there is reformation and revival in the land. And Christians rise up in great numbers, storming the mercy seat. Yes, lobbying the government. Oh, of course, we use these means. But having their confidence in the gospel, when hearts are turned, when God makes all things new, that alone can transform a society. But no matter how much that happens here below, no utopia will ever come here below. No matter how much revival, no matter how much reformation, but only the beginning, only a foreshadowing. What John is describing here in Revelation 21 verse 8 is something vastly bigger, vastly more comprehensive. He's speaking about the regeneration of the universe. Behold, I make all things new. The old is going to pass away and the new is going to come. John begins by saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the regeneration of the universe. What does it mean, though? And what is it going to be like? And what does John actually see? These are important questions. And they bring us to our second thought. What is going to happen? What is going to happen? It's God's utopia, but what is going to happen? Well, our our text tells us many things that will happen and things that won't happen. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And remember, John says, all of this happens in an instant. In the previous chapter, you recall some weeks ago that there was a scene of judgment. And we're told that when the Lord comes in judgment, heaven and earth will shrink from his presence. And Peter tells us in a complimentary passage that the heavens and the earth will be dissolved with fervent heat when Christ comes again. And they'll be rolled up like a scroll. The world is going to be destroyed by fire on the last day when Christ comes again. And yet, that moment, it is destroyed. The very same moment, it will reappear. That's the teaching here. There'll be new heavens and our new earth. Revelation 20, the earth will be destroyed. Revelation 21, the earth will reappear. And the reappearing earth won't be totally different from the present heaven and earth as we know it at the present time. Our text says it will be a new heaven and a new earth. But the Greek word here for kainos, meaning new, does not mean another doesn't mean like world number two, but it means rather a new world. It will be very different from this world, and yet it will be this world made new. Now, that's perhaps unfamiliar territory for for many of us. We think only of heaven out there in, in, in the glorious heaven of heavens, but The land where it dwells righteousness, John tells us several places, so does Paul, is both in the heavens and on the renewed earth. And how that will work in combination, we don't know. 
but this earth will be regenerated. Now, let me take you just for a few moments tonight to three texts, and I want to approach this from different angles as Scripture does to, to, to teach this to you so it gets embedded in your, in your memory bank and, and, and you don't forget it. Go, come, turn with me, first of all, if you will, to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Now look at verse 28. This is the one time Jesus uses the word regeneration in the Bible of the entire universe, not just of individuals. Notice what it says. Verily I say unto you, Matthew 19, 28, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus is obviously talking here about the future age, about his return. He's saying, you have followed me now in the regeneration, when all things are made new, in the new heavens and the new earth. When the Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory, you too will sit on thrones of glory and reign and rule with him. You see, there's a parallel here between the regeneration of the universe and the regeneration of the individual believer. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it's fascinating. When you are made a new creation, and you're brought from self-made darkness into God's marvelous light, in the moment you're regenerated or born again or saved, they all mean the same thing. At that moment, you are not made another person, are you? You're not two people. You are regenerated. You're a very different person. Your basic personality and temperament is not perhaps radically changed, but your internal being is radically changed. So, you, you, you're still recognizable. People identify you, and you, they call your name, and it's you. You're not two people. So it will be in the regeneration of the universe. That's true also when you die and when you rise again. People will recognize your body. Your body will then be designed for, for, for immortality, but it will be recognizable, just as Jesus' body was recognizable when he arose from the dead. The graves will be open, your bodies will be raised and reconstituted, and you'll be physically alive in a spiritual world. And so will happen to this world. This world will be made a new creation, but it will be recognizable and beautiful. Just like you will be perfect, dear believer, the world will be perfect in that day. It will be utopia. That's what Jesus says. Now turn with me to another text in Acts 3. Acts 3. This is Peter speaking about this same theme now. Acts 3, uh, verses 19 through 21. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom... The heaven must receive until, now notice this, notice this, the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, those are the Old Testament prophets, since the world began. You see what Peter's saying? Peter's saying, 
If you read your Old Testament, you'll see clearly that the prophets have been saying since the world began that there's going to be a restitution, that is, a restoration of all things at the end time. When Jesus comes again, God is going to restore this world to what he originally intended it to be. It will be perfect. And it will perfectly glorify him forever and ever. So this world is not going to be obliterated or destroyed altogether. It will go up in flames, but at the same time it will be remade, regenerated, restored into perfection. Utopia. Now finally, turn with me then to Romans 8. You find the same theme here. Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. This time it's not Jesus or Peter, but Paul who speaks. Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, Romans 8, 18, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying there's a time coming when this creation, which is now in bondage and now suffering the effects of the fall, will be liberated. This creation is going to be freed from the curse of sin and be a radically renewed and restored world. And all will be perfect. And believers will be perfect people in a perfect physical universe full of beauty and complexity and excitement, a universe teeming with life. That's why the Bible hardly says anything about the intermediate state between the time we die and our souls are with Christ as believers and the time when Christ comes again. It's so short. If he tarries 100 years, if he tarries 2,000 years, it's a drop in the bucket. But eternity is coming. When the whole man, the resurrected body, as surely as Christ resurrected, so surely we will resurrect to a blessed resurrection, as we heard this morning. And that blessed resurrection will be a perfect soul put back into a perfect body, and we will perfectly praise him forever in a perfect world to come, a perfect heaven and a perfect earth, regenerated and made perfect forever. So we won't be worshiping God forever and ever with disembodied spirits or ghosts or anything like that. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the confirmation. This is the ultimate fruit of Christ's physical resurrection. It's a guarantee that we will be resurrected. And if we're believers, we will be with him forever in this new world, this new utopia. Now, now this is the best news of all. In this glorious new utopia, John tells us, the crowning joy of it is that God, the triune God in Christ, will always be present and accessible to his people. God will be everywhere present in this regenerated world. That's what John is saying. Listen to what he says. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Verse 2, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we saw a few chapters back what that means, the bride adorned for her husband. It's a wonderful, glorious 
intimate marriage. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's covenantal language. But you'll see what John is saying. He's saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw coming down into the new heavens and earth, the holy Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, wedded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the people that will populate the new heavens and the new earth. And then John says, I saw something else. I heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Isn't that fascinating? A tabernacle is no longer hidden somewhere in a wilderness in the backside of a desert outside of Canaan. The tabernacle is no longer in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in the Holy of Holies. A tabernacle is in no particular land, no particular place, no particular time. But the tabernacle is God himself dwelling with his people in the new heavens and on the new earth. And there is never a place where that God is not. There's nowhere in heaven you can go to get out of eyesight, as it were, of this living God. He's always present. He's a lamb. You remember back in Revelation 7? He's a lamb lifted high upon the throne and every eye shall see him. It's a wonderful confirmation that all our faith will be turned into sight, as it were. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, says Isaiah 33, 17. And now it will be perfectly true, utopian-like true, forever and ever and ever, and no more through a glass darkly. No more needing spectacles of the word even to, to see him. You know, John Bunyan puts this so beautifully in The Pilgrim's Progress. It's just uh, amazing. He writes about a certain man. You remember, boys and girls, a man named Mr. Standfast. Standfast. And when this man joins the pilgrims on their way to the celestial city, he bears his heart with these words to Christian. The thought, the thought, just the thought of what I am going to lies like a glowing coal in my heart. And later on, when he goes across the Jordan River into the celestial city, he parts ways with his dear friends. And Mr. Stanfast says this, I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spat upon for me. Formerly I have lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him forever in whose company I delight myself. God, dear believer, shall tabernacle with you. You will live with him. You'll be married to him. He will abide with you. A Puritan, Samuel, Scottish Puritan, Samuel Rutherford, put it in words that are unforgettable. And it was turned by someone else into a poem called The, the Sands of Time Are Sinking. You know the poem. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. 
My dear friend, if your heart doesn't thrill at that thought, at the ultimate confirmation of Christ's resurrection, that you will gaze upon him forever and enjoy him no more through a glass darkly and drink your full of Christ forever and never have to turn away and never get sucked back into sin and indwelling corruption, but forever, perfectly, Oh, utopia, hallelujah, to be centered upon Jesus Christ. If that doesn't thrill your heart, you are not a Christian. This is the longing. This is the desire of every true believer, to be with God, to tabernacle with him who tabernacles with us forever. What a glorious thing this is. You know, sometimes sometimes you go to work, and uh, perhaps your work can be very routine. You get into work, and you find that you're busy, you've got lots to do, and, and most of the day you, well, you scarcely have a passing thought about God. You forget about Him, it grieves you, and you long for the day to come when you'll never forget God for a moment. That's what John is saying. I will never forget Him for a single second. You'll always be present. There'll be no more dark night of the soul when God withdraws himself from my consciousness. There'll be no days or weeks or months or years in that new age in which he will distance himself from me or I from him because of my sin. He will dwell with me. He won't visit me occasionally. It'll be better than the first paradise where God came to walk periodically with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. But now in the cool of the glories of heaven, he will warmly walk with me forever and forever. He will tabernacle. He will tent with me. That's what heaven is all about. Samuel Rutherford put it this way, if there are a thousand heavens piled on top of one another, my Lord Jesus would be the centerpiece of them all. Heaven is all about communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John adds something really special here. Very special. Go back to verse 1, just a moment. And there was no more sea. What does that mean? Well, I, again, I don't think John means this literally. This is a symbolic book, you remember. We, have, we, we can't look at this text and say, well, now on the new earth, it'll be all land and there'll be no water. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. The sea is a symbol. The sea is a symbol of several things. I would suggest probably five things. Let me give them to you. First of all, it says, it's implying symbolically, no more separation. No more separation. You see, John is on the island of Patmos. He's separated from the churches he loves, the seven churches of Asia. He could go perhaps to the hill overlooking the sea, and he can see land on the other side, but he can't get there. There's a separation. He's imprisoned. The sea separates people. Today, we don't feel this very much. It's hard for us to identify with this because we can get in a plane, we can hop over the sea in seven hours. But there are older people sitting here tonight, boys and girls, who remember the day when their dad and mom or their parents or grandparents came across the ocean on a boat, or maybe left the old fatherland behind, 
And they were weeping people. It, they felt like when they left the Netherlands or some other country, like, like they were saying goodbye forever. The sea separates. Well, John feels this in even a keener way. And what John is saying when he says there's no more sea, he's saying there's no more goodbyes, there's no more separations, no more fellowship will ever have to break up. There'll be no isolation, no persecution, no suffering for the sake of Christ, no pain. There'll be no sea to divide a child of God from another child of God. There'll be no dividing also of people because of problems. That's an even worse divider. No divisions because of envies and suspicions and jealousies. No breaking up of life unions of marriage or friendships. Uh, no, none of those sorest human sorrows that belong to failing friendships and wounded trusts. Gather all those hurts and agonies and separations of this world. Also the separation of the loss of loved ones to glory. And the pain of no longer being able to go to see them anywhere in the world. Gather them all into one bundle. Put them all in one pile. All the heartaches that result from all the separation. John says it's all done, dear believer. There was no more sea, no more separation. But secondly, there's also no more danger. No more danger. And we look out at the sea and we say it's beautiful. It looks so peaceful. But you know, there's still a lot of shipwreck going on in the world, even today, with all our modern inventions. I think of the hundreds of parents right now that are just weeping day and night because they fear their teenage children are lost on a ship just off the coast of South Korea. It's very real still today. But in John's day, and in the day even of our forefathers, sea was a dangerous place. When you took the risk of going across the ocean, even a couple hundred years ago, it was at the risk of your life. A dangerous place. Well, certainly in Bible times, it was very dangerous. Lots of people died on the sea. So you step on deck, you go out in the sea 2,000 years ago, and you cross the sea for land somewhere else, and you lose all sight of land, you scarcely meet another sailboat, you'll wonder what sense of danger will come your way. What enemy will try to destroy you? What wave is going to wipe you out? You're praying the whole way. There's dangers galore. That's the symbol of the sea. It's a dangerous place. And John says, in that day, there'll be no more danger. No more danger. No more sea. Have you ever lost a friend at sea? Oh, I, I spoke once with an aged mother who lost a son at sea. She's just afraid of the sea. It's a dangerous place. Well, if it's dangerous to the body, it's just also symbolic of the dangers to the soul. How many dangers there are. We as parents, when we bring up our children, we know the world wants them. We know Satan wants them. We know their own soul is corrupt by nature. And our own hearts are, 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 are often in the wrong place to train them uprightly. There's so much against child rearing. So many dangers. It's like a big sea, like an ocean of fears. What's going to happen to my, my children? Who are they going to marry? Are they going to stay with the truth, not only outwardly, but know it inwardly? Oh God, there are so many dangers. Help me to raise these children. 
John says in that day, no more dangers. No more dangers. Only rejoicing. Only resting. Only safety. Only the peace of God. No more fears. No more treacherous, perilous, storm-tossed teas. It's no more sea forever. Safe home at last. I don't know if you've ever been tired of being on the water and you, you, brought, you brought a sailboat on and, you, and, the, and the sailboat finally hit the sand on the shore. When it makes that, that peculiar noise as it comes up against the sand and you step off and say, wow, it feels good to stand on solid ground. John's saying that's what it'll be like to come to glory. Oh, I made it through this life. I made it across all the dangerous seas. And I've, uh, I've been sandbanked now into the eternal realm of glory where there will be no more sea. And then thirdly, no more mystery. No more mystery. The sea is very mysterious, isn't it? You never know when the wind's going to kick up. You never know where the storms are going to come. God, of course, is the only one who is greater, sometimes a greater mystery than the mystery of the sea, and he holds the sea in his hand. He ruleth the seas, says the psalmist, and again, he holdeth the waters in the hollow of his hand. But sometimes even God's ways are so mysterious, so distressing, so agonizing, so ununderstandable that we don't know what to make of them. And even God himself says to us, what I do now, thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. Sometimes we have everything figured out. We think everything should go a certain way, and we expect it to go that way. And then God suddenly shocks us and surprises us and disappoints us and casts down our hopes and fills us with mystery, like a mysterious sea. My own father used to, was one of his sayings to, to say often to us children, God's people often go into the grave with more unanswered riddles than answered. There's so many mysteries. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. Now, says John, no more sea, no more mystery. All things shall be made plain. Now we will understand every one of God's leadings. Now the final hereafter will have arrived. And what he has done all my lifetime I shall know. Because all of heaven will be lit up, not with the sun, not with the moon. Later on, we read in this very same chapter, Revelation 21, I think it's verse 23. It'll be lit up with Jesus Christ, who is the light of it. And so everything will be made plain. No more sea of mystery. And then no more sea means no more change. No more change. You know, the restless sea is always uh, changing. Tides are coming in, going out. Uh, varying waves fling themselves up on the rocks, cast up showers of spray, surprising people. It's like our lives. Our lives are checkered. I just mentioned to someone today that what the weather predictions were uh, yesterday for 10 days from now. And the person said to me, well, 10 days from now. <laughs> it, it could all change by then. I don't even pay attention to that. 10 days. Everything could change in your life. One day everything can change in your life. Tony Westray, last week Thursday. A week ago Thursday. 
suddenly has a severe stroke, dies on Saturday, buried on the following Tuesday, all in one week. Otherwise, a healthy man. So many changes. And the Bible tells us, therefore, to lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moss nor rust doth corrupt or thieves do not break through or steal. Because everything in this earth can change. Your business could be great today. It could be in shambles this summer. But John says, no more sea. One day, everything will be peaceful and calm. It will be a sea of glass. Remember that when we talked about that some chapters back? Heaven will be a sea of glass. This beautiful calm and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we'll still be growing. We'll still be educating ourselves. But there'll be no more changes in the sense of surprising things that are disturbing. But there'll be an ever-growing, growing, growing. Nothing of which you ever have to say, oh, that's a trial for me. No more trials. And finally, no more sea implies no more conflict. The sea is a, an emblem of conflict, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen a storm at sea, but a storm at sea can be very nasty. The lightning can flash and uh, for a moment relieve the darkness, but it shows the seething, boiling waters. The waters that seem like in a tumult of war, and the ship in the midst of the sea can hardly keep itself upright, facing wind and wave. How many conflicts there are, symbolically. Everything in the world, the family, even the church, Anything worth having must be won in the battlefield, like wind and wave and storm. We battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil in every area of our lives often. And sometimes these enemies unite to beat upon the ship of our lives. What a conflict. Sometimes we grow weary of it, don't we? Don't you grow weary of conflict? Oh, that I had wings like a dove, said David. I would fly far away and be at rest. But John says, just a little while more, and you will be at rest. There will be no more sea, no more sea. Just look up. Look to the Lord who's coming. Be brave in the shadows, because soon the shadows will flee away. Be strong in the battlefield, because soon the archangel's trump shall stop the conflict and call the victors to their crown. Be patient in the darkness, for the day is breaking, and the Savior is coming, the day of God, the judgment day. Bear nobly even those heartbreaking separations and conflicts in this life, because God will tabernacle with you forever. Over the restless ocean of life, We journey now, but with Christ in our vessel, we are guaranteed a safe harbor and an everlasting, peaceful glory. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And we shall sing in that day unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. What a future. But now just reverse it for one moment. What about those who are not believing, not repenting, not trusting in the Savior, not prepared to meet him, and die that way? The opposite will happen. 
it will be all see, all separation from God's favor, continual conflict, continually midnight, never midday, howling, storm-tossed, wintry waters, never dropping into calm, never lit by summer sunshine, full of separation and danger and mystery and suffering and conflict. That's hell. And never an inkling of the mercy of God. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And so, no more see is God's way of putting in the negative the positive of the future. And God often does that about heaven. Actually, it's done seven times in these last two chapters, and four of them in our text tonight. Notice what it says here, too. It says, God shall wipe away, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, verse 4. And here again, the Greek is very interesting. Literally, God will wipe away every tear out of their eyes. He's saying you won't need tear ducts in in the new Jerusalem because God will not only wipe tears from your face, but he's actually going to wipe out the tears from your eyes. There'll be no need for tears anymore. And then he goes on, he says, there shall be no more death. This is all in the, in the negative, but it means the positive. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So not just no more sea, but no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. You shall ever be with the Lord. Everything shall be well. There'll be perfect salvation. Freedom from Satan, world, old nature. Sin will all be left behind. Perfect activities, worshiping God, serving God, reigning with Christ, whatever that means, we don't know now yet. Eternal fellowship, eternal singing, blessed conversation, eternal education, eternal rejoicing. Then not only perfect salvation, perfect activities, but perfect place, perfect mansions with a perfect God, perfect light, perfect gold, perfect feasting with him. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then perfect communion. That's, that's the apex of it. Perfect communion with the triune God. All these negatives, you see, mean the positive. I will enjoy knowing him and loving him and seeing him and praising him and communing with him. I will forever bask in his smile and bathe in his glory and feast in his presence. Everything will be perfect Forever without one interruption. No problems there that you can't solve. You know, here, you go to a doctor, sometimes he says to you, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. You have to live with this for the rest of your life. Maybe it's some pain, maybe it's some chronic pain, and you never get over it. Well, there's a day coming where you will get over it, dear believer, or there'll be no more pain, no more night, no more struggle, no more bereavement, It is God's utopia. The New Testament puts it this way. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So that's the question to us tonight. May I say it to you three ways? Do you love him? 
Do you love him? Do you love him? Or I could say the fourth way, do, right now, present tense, you love him. You see, there's no room in the Bible for those who have to say, I have no love for God. What would they do in heaven if they got there? Because it's all a God-centered place that loves God. That's the whole purpose of heaven, to love him and glorify him and praise him. If you haven't begun to do that here, you'd feel out of place in heaven. And that brings us to the question, therefore, exactly who is going to to be there? And we'll look at that from verses 5 through 8 briefly. Who is going to be there? That's what verses 5 through 8 answer. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable murderers and whoremongers, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, that is, those people that don't overcome, but are governed by their sin, dominated by their sin, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. So who's going to be in this new utopia, this new world utopia? The simplest answer is simply this. Overcomers. Who is not going to be there? Those who have been overcome by sin and by Satan. Verse 8. In other words, John says, all mankind is divided into two classes. There are the overcomers who are thirsty people who thirst for God, who feel their need, who are driven to Christ, who find their thirst quenched, not by their thirst itself, but by Jesus Christ, who receive him and believe in him and trust in him and by the grace of the Holy Spirit cast their all upon him, who throw themselves upon mercy and then who walk in the strength of him who saves them. And though they fall and stumble, yes, and are sometimes overcome, the general tenor of their life is that they are overcomers. They, they, They love the Lord. They want to obey Him. The direction of their life is toward obedience. They shall inherit utopia by the grace of God who saved them. But the others shall not. The fearful and unbelieving. And you you see the list. The list is actually quite amazing, you know. That the fearful and the unbelieving are put side by side with murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers. And uh, sorcery here, actually in the original Greek, a literal translation is a dispenser of drugs. A drug pusher. And you see in this list also uh, unbelief. Unbelief is put on par with a drug pusher. Why is that? Well, because when you're fearful and unbelieving, you're so afraid to truly repent. You're so afraid to make yourself vulnerable to God. You're so afraid to trust in Christ alone because you you don't really believe he's going to hold you up. You don't really believe that he's 
He's a savior. So you, for one reason or another, you, you keep yourself from him. But what John is saying, all those reasons are damnable. Whether it's you don't want your comfortable life to be disturbed, whether it's if you suck poison out of God's sovereignty, as, as, as Calvin put it, and, and say, well, I can't come and so I, I won't, and you just stay away, or whether you want to try to do it your own way, it doesn't matter in the end what, which, which way you do it or how afraid you are. But the bottom line is unbelief is the mother sin of all sin. Unbelief is what keeps you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelief will destroy you. And you'll be overcome by it. Anyone who hears the gospel and does not bend the knee in this life to King Jesus will be in the overcome group because we're all sinners by nature. There is nothing worse in all this world than to refuse to repent and bow the knee to the Son of God and to trust in Him alone for salvation. What a tragedy. But there is a way. There is a way from verse 8 back into verse 7. Thanks be to God. Paul tells us that way in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, not inherit this utopia? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of mankind with themselves, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Similar list. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says some of you were overcome by these things, but now God has entered your life. He's become too strong for you. You've been made willing in the day of his power, and now you are no longer held in the grasp of these sins of fearfulness and unbelief and and, uh, all kinds of wickedness, covetousness, and so on. God has delivered you. And he not only delivers you and gives you pardon, but verse 7 says he gives you a title as well. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. I don't only forgive you, I adopt you into my family, God says. And you'll be part of my family, one of my children, forever and ever and ever. And this isn't some kind of dream. He says in verse 5, Right, for these words are true and faithful. These words are to rely, be relied upon. They're trustworthy. No sinner who has ever repented and believed the gospel by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit has ever found them untrustworthy, has ever gone lost. And why? Because, well, Jesus is then my total Savior. He's my Alpha and Omega, John says. My A and Z, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And I told you the story of how I spoke to my mother just a few weeks before she died, and she was suffering from dementia, and I asked her a very foolish question when I read this, this portion of God's Word. I read her these first eight verses. When I got to verse 6, I read Alpha and Omega. I thought she wouldn't understand it, so I foolishly asked her. I said, Mother, do you understand what this means? And as soon as I said it, I thought, well, of course she can't understand it. But she looked me straight in the face, and she said, Honey, doesn't that mean that Jesus Christ is the first and the last and everything in between for us? I said, yes, that's it. 
Here's a woman suffering from dementia. And this is so deep in her heart. She understands the words Alpha and Omega in the midst of dementia. What will it be when you have your full mind and your full capabilities and glory and you gaze upon the bridegroom who's your Alpha and your Beta and all the letters of the Greek alphabet all the way to Omega and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, thou art everything to me. Who won't want to live that way here and who won't want to inherit that utopia hereafter? How foolish it is to turn away from the Savior who offers himself to the greatest of sinners. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on this text. He says near the end, he said, you must joyfully take Christ or die in your sins. Why should you not take him? Is this some bitter medicine I'm pressing on you? And are you like a child who must be coaxed into taking what is good for you? Why should you need persuading? Do you secretly hope there may be some other way of salvation? You are greatly deceived if you do. The Son of God would not have died to save if it could have been done in any other way. Are you trying to find any reasons why you should not come to Christ? Well, that is just ruinous to yourself. Few people in this life hunt up arguments against themselves. Why would you do that? Would you turn advocate for the devil against yourself? Will you urge arguments to seal your own condemnation? When Jesus Christ says in verse 6, let him that is a thirst, whoever he is, come. Will you stand in your own way and block up your own path to life? Will you give God the lie for the sake of destroying your own soul? Oh, I say to you, it's the wisest thing to say to him. I am an undeserving, hell-deserving sinner, but if God is infinite in mercy, why should he not save me as well as anyone else? He declares that if I trust in his son, he will pardon me. Lord, receive me, for I receive thy son. I've been trying to save myself all these years and waiting until I felt something or did something in and of myself. But now, Lord, though I neither see nor feel anything but my lost estate, I do believe that Jesus can save me and I trust in him alone. Cast yourself upon him. Let me close this sermon with this illustration. At one time, the coin of Spain was stamped with two pictures, two pillars of Hercules representing the great rock of Gibraltar and Mount Cutter on the Moroccan coast. And above the pillars was stamped the words, Ne Clus Ultra. That was the motto of Spain, stamped on all their coins. And it meant, no more beyond. That is, no more beyond these two pillars. This is the boundary of civilization. Nothing beyond. But of course, you boys and girls know what happened. In the 15th century, a man named Christopher Columbus sailed beyond. And he discovered the new world, the Americas. And then the Spaniards took the word N-E, nay, off of the coin, leaving only the words in their future mintage of coins, clus ultra, which means there's more beyond. That's the message of John in Revelation 21 and 22. That's the message of the resurrected Christ. There's more beyond this life is not the end. We need to be prepared to sail beyond this life. Death is not what Sir Walter Scott called the long halt that closes all, but rather, in Lewis's words, it's chapter one 
of the great story that goes on forever, in which every chapter for a believer is better than the one before. Have you discovered that? That there is more beyond? Or are you burying your head in this world, scuttling around as if this world is all there is to life? Or are you living for a new world where there are new heavens and a new earth? Have your horizons been pushed back by someone greater than Christopher Columbus? Yes, Jesus Christ. And are you, to quote Peter, therefore hastening and looking for that day when there will be new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness? Amen. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for the wonderful, wonderful gospel conveyed by John in Revelation 21 as the ultimate fruit of the resurrected Lord of glory. Please, Lord, bless the sermons of this day to our souls and help us to live for what is beyond, not for this life. Oh, let it become eternity before eternity that we may be prepared for eternity in and through the blood of Emmanuel. Do bless us now. Do go with us into this week. Help us to live wholly and solely for thee. And do grant that we may be heirs and sons of the living God and be ripened to be with him forever in that glorious utopia we call heaven or glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.